Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Christopher J. Coyne, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, and Abigail R. Hall, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Tampa. Together, they are the authors of Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Now, you're both economists. So why why would economists write a book as opposed to political scientists or historians or whatever, a book about American militarism? So this is part of a, a broader research program that, that we've been involved in for, for several years, uh, looking at various parts of US policy, specifically foreign policy, but trying to bring some of the fundamental insights of economics to understanding both the limits uh, and possibilities of that foreign policy. And so, uh, you know, it's the, the way we view it is kind of the consistent application of the economic way of thinking, uh, uh, relative prices, scarcity, constraints, incentives, knowledge constraints, and so on. And uh, to our way of thinking, many of these issues are neglected in typical kind of IR, international relation treatments of these issues, public policy discussions. And so we think there's important uh, kind of light to be shed on a variety of topics using the economic way of thinking. And so those can be things from intervening abroad and trying to shape institutions. But in the, in the case of this project, thinking about how foreign intervention and militarism can affect domestic life. Do you have a definition of militarism, like how you're using that term throughout this conversation? So the way we think about militarism is the, and of course, a variety of different scholars have talked about it, is the reliance or primacy of the military means as a way of interacting, shaping, and influencing military affairs. Uh, that's one aspect of it. The related aspect then is that militarism influences the domestic fabric, if you will, uh, social fabric, uh, political fabric, economic fabric uh, uh, of domestic life. Uh, and so uh, the way we view militarism is kind of a dominant ideology of, of military primacy where pretty much every problem or, or most problems around the world uh, and domestically for that matter, when you think about things like the war on terror, the war on drugs, uh, are viewed as being solved at least partially, if not entirely, through military means. You make a big distinction too. So you're looking – we're looking at the size and scope of government or the, the scope and scale you guys talk about and what could be – how could militarism be a particular sort of input into this, but you make a big distinction between scale and scope. So what is that distinction? So when we talk about scale, uh, we're meaning just the overall size of government. Uh, and economists are really good at measuring scale. So you can look at things like government spending as a percentage of GDP. You can look at the number of people who are employed by the federal government. There are lots of different measurements that we can use uh, to talk about scale. Um, where it's often neglected, though, uh, is the issue of scope, which would be, well, what are the activities that government is engaged in? Uh, and we talk about several reasons that economists and others tend to ignore issues of scope. So it's assumed to be correlated uh, with scale. So you assume that if the scale of government is growing, the scope of government uh, is also growing. There are also issues with how economists and others typically model government activities. So the way that uh, government's portrayed is that it's providing goods and services in the optimal amount. So they're maximizing some kind of a, a welfare function. Defense goods are a part of that. Um, and so it, it tends to be ignored. We, we focus in on scope because I think uh, listeners will probably appreciate that that model of government is probably not the best for understanding how it is that government actually provides resources, defense uh, included. Um, but we also focus in on scope because the tools that we're using for this particular project are particularly well-tuned uh, to shed light on issues related to scope. So by going through and working with this framework that we've developed, by looking into the historical cases that we do, uh, we're positioning ourselves to be able to use those economic tools to explain uh, a part of government action that's often neglected. And this is, there's not, it's not particularly quantitative too, that's important. There's no graph. I, mean, I didn't find a single graph or at least a numerical graph in your book or how you measure this. Because if you just measure GDP expenditure or how many people work for the government, as you pointed out, Abby, that it might half of them might be defense attorneys. 
All right, you might have a huge, and they would to, to protect the rights of criminal defendants. So you, can't, if you just measure how many people are employed by the government, you're not actually measuring how much they protect rights or violate them. That's exactly right. And and the other interesting thing from from an economic standpoint is we typically talk about technological advances in the context of private markets and private life. And one of the, of course, key insights that we have from private peaceful interaction markets and so on is that you get innovation, you get technological advances. Though that lowers the cost of doing things, which in markets we tend to say is a good thing. But that also applies to technological advances for the state. Uh, and so, so as the state uh, acquires and develops tools of social control that lowers the cost of them violating people's rights, you actually need fewer resources to utilize those effectively. And so not only do kind of crude aggregate macro measures miss this, these nuances, but they also miss kind of the dynamics of innovation and, and what that means for the amount of resources necessary to carry out an increased range of activities. What's the What are the drivers of, if we're seeing increased militarism, and we're talking about this from an economic standpoint, so there's, there's incentives and there's interests that are being pursued and so on. I mean, we can obviously like the military or people who are making money off of the military have an interest in increasingly using the military or growing it or, or solving – I have that in square, scare quotes – solving problems through the application of military force. But are there other – like there what – what are the kind of non-just you know, defense contractor driven things that are causing more militarism? So that's a that's a great question. It's a it's a big topic, of course. And I think the answer is is multifaceted, and so I won't do full justice to it. But I think uh, you you clearly have incentives of interest groups driving this. But I also think there's a broader ideological shift in the the case of America uh, that happened over time. And of course, there's ebbs and flows over time. But really, kind of the the focal point, if you will, is is the post World War II period, and there there was a major ideological shift at that time. Uh, uh, which again is it was driven by numerous uh, uh, factors, but there was a, a acceptance both in the policy establishment of the foreign policy community as well as uh, among a large number of American citizens that America was going to be involved and and had to be involved globally. That there was going to be a state of kind of total war, if you will, and permanent war to combat the communist threat. And so you, in the wake of, of the world wars, you get the onset of the Cold War and that this wasn't going to be like historical wars where you had kind of this ramping up of, of, of resources, expenditures and military might. You engaged against a, a clear identifiable enemy. And once that enemy was defeated, the war was over, if you will. Instead, this was going to be a situation where you know, the, the enemy was an ideology, a set of beliefs. Um, and, and so uh, that that was something that needs to be combated both across geographic space, but also domestically, because you could have infiltrators domestically that would erode uh, uh, the American way of life. And it was going to be open ended. And that influenced the, the shape of foreign policy. It influenced economic activity associated with war production. And so you get the onset of what people have called the permanent war economy, where instead of just shifting resources to increase certain military outputs, we had to prepare for future wars as well. Uh, and uh, of course, the, the military contractors that you mentioned played into that, which is once you had this ideology in place, uh, of course, they benefit greatly from the, from the persistence of that type of, of setup. To add on to that, the examples that I always use, and they're important for not only what we do in this book, but in uh, other pieces that we've written as well, is looking at the importance of the war on drugs and the war on terror. So Chris mentioned a moment ago that in prior conflicts, you have a very clearly well-defined enemy, and that enemy is external. But there is now this internal component when you've got the war on drugs and the war on terror. And so you have this tendency, I think, which is natural when people are afraid of something, they want uh, people to come in and, and fix it. And the people in this case that are coming in to fix it are our government. And people become more comfortable over time with these intrusions on their personal liberties because there is that fear component that's there. Uh, the example that I use oftentimes with my undergraduate students is that they don't remember what it was like to fly pre 9-11, because uh, at this point, most of them weren't born yet. Uh, but had you told someone in 1995, for example, that every time they went to the airport, their full body was going to be scanned, they could be pat down by some uh, government agent, now the TSA, a lot of people would have told you that you were crazy. Now we think about that as being normal and a necessary security procedure. And I get that's a way of putting, I think, the thesis generally of the book, which is historically, we would have said, what is the main cost to America domestically? 
for fighting, say, a war in Vietnam or a war in the Philippines as, as a lot of this stuff seems to begin. And it would be, oh, well, taxes and lives of American soldiers, those are the main costs that come back to America. And But you're, you say no, that there's actually what you call the boomerang effect, uh, that there are more costs to this that are more deeply ingrained within the social fabric that happens, as Abby said, maybe without even you noticing it, suddenly we're being patted down at airports or other things. So talk a little bit more about the boomerang effect and how that works. Sure. And so, uh, you know, as you point out, the one of the key kind of insights in the book is a very basic point that comes out of economics, Frederick Bastiat and then Henry Hazlitt, of course, about the unseen. Uh, and, and as Hazlitt put it, uh, uh, the art of economics is not just analyzing the observable consequences of a policy, but also the chain of events that occurs, much of which is, is un unseen. And so really, in some sense, that's what's driving us here. The, the, some of uh, we're, we're trying to identify some of the main unseen and overlooked cost of a proactive militaristic foreign policy. And so how do we go about doing that? Well, we, we tried to develop a, a broad framework to, to think about these issues, drawing upon some of the insights fr from the economic way of thinking. And, and the boomerang effect, what we call the boomerang effect in its, in its core logic goes as, as follows. Uh, foreign intervention provides a, a testing ground, if you will, or laboratory for governments to innovate, sharpen, and refine tools of social control other, over other human beings. Uh, when governments in abroad, uh, uh, intervene abroad, uh, or the American government does, there are, are relatively few constraints on, on what it can do, uh, which we, we go through in the book, the weakness of those constraints or the significant slack in those constraints. And so an unconstrained government or largely unconstrained government will undertake actions that it otherwise wouldn't at home um, if it was constrained uh, and will feel comfortable uh, doing things to other human beings that they otherwise couldn't do if, if they were uh, effectively constrained. Under certain conditions, uh, the innovations in social control that take place both in preparing for and executing foreign interventions return back to domestic life through a variety of channels that we discuss. And when that happens, the American government not only becomes more effective at controlling other people, but also the domestic citizenry as well. The relationship between domestic citizens and uh, uh, politics and political institutions changes uh, and uh, kind of the, the fabric of domestic life changes uh, for the worse oftentimes. Uh, and that can, can lead to a variety of immediate consequences, but also long-term consequences as well. And so really one of the, 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 the key themes of the book is that foreign interventions create institutional precedent. They create precedents that oftentimes can sit there for long periods of time unused, uh, but future Politicians can use them. Um, they can they can draw upon uh, uh, the precedents that are created. And those those precedents can be legal precedents. Uh, they can be technological uh, precedents, and then they can be used in ways that were unintended at the time of their initial design and implementation. So, is this different? One thing that we hear a bunch about, say, the New Deal, is that a lot of the people who created the New Deal had been involved with the wartime economy in World War One, And we put ourselves on a wartime footing and everything was planned and we had to centralize and we all have one goal. And that seemed really, really good. And then they were refugees from for the for the Coolidge and Harding years and, and Hoover years. And then they come back in the Roosevelt years and say, well, right, wartime was great. Why can't we have a permanent wartime footing for the economy? Is, this, is that a similar kind of claim that you guys are making or at least in the same kind of certainly, side? Certainly, it's, it's similar. And, and, and if I had to generalize from that point, that's a wonderful example. It is that people develop certain skills, certain what economists call human capital, uh, which is influenced by their experiences, what they do, what they become experts in doing. And that's going to influence their, their future, what they do in the future. And, and also to the extent they're involved in policy, in influencing organizations and institutions, the shape that those things take. Uh, and so- uh, a, 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 you know, if if I had to summarize one of the key takeaways, you can never just do one thing. And so an intervention, even a well-targeted, well-designed intervention is going to have a, a series of, of consequences which you cannot fully anticipate, which you cannot fully measure. Uh, and it's something to take into account when we're thinking about foreign policy. Is there a way to make the unseen seen in this instance? I mean, so one of the ways to address these incentives would to be to make the unseen more seen, these costs more obvious. And I mean, you can do it like obviously your book is a step in that direction, but most people aren't reading books of academic this type books, yeah. of academic books. Um, are there ways to adjust the incentives here to at least push back on this tendency? Edward Snowden did it, I guess. He, I think, he made some unseen things seen. I, I think that that is a 
it's a really tall order. Um, one of the things that I know I frequently am pushing back on is that um, we know that there are lots of unintended consequences of conflict. And one of the things that I know came that came out for me from writing this book was looking to see how, uh, in some cases, as Chris pointed out, you have things that have been on the books for a very long time or things take a really long time to develop. And so some of those unintended consequences, you might not see them for, I mean, forget months, it might be years or, or decades. But the fact that there are lots of unintended costs associated with conflict, whether we're talking about um, the loss of liberties, we're talking about environmental impacts, there's a whole list of things that we could discuss. I think one shift that I would like to see, I think it's probably, again, not likely to happen, is the impetus really needs to be on people who then are proponents of conflict to come to the table and have some way of articulating or offering some kind of a reasonable explanation for why we wouldn't expect to see uh, these types of consequences that we historically have seen with pretty much every conflict. One of my favorite things about your book is that you do break it down. Uh, and as I pointed out, some many people have said, you know, the same people in World War One were in the New Deal, but you kind of break it down and say, well, this is what actually is going on. So in the the one that Chris mentioned, the human capital channel. If you create a bunch of generals and soldiers, for example, to fight a war overseas, they might come back and be cops, which which is happens a bunch uh, in the story. But you have these basic things like I saw like extreme confidence uh, regarding the interventionist ability to solve complex problems in other societies through massive bureaucratic public private apparatus. So the, the, there's five more you, you talk about, but just like that one is the kind of thing that you learn, right? And then you're not. You're no longer just relegated to working in foreign countries now. You, you might come back and get a job. That's right. And so we, we term this the interventionist mindset. And really, you know, to understand this, that, that list of propositions that you just mentioned, the first one. And, and one of the core kind of foundation things we discuss in the book, and I think it's important for people to talk about, irrespective of where they fall down on how interventionist America or other governments should be, is what does intervention in other societies require? Uh, and at its core, it requires uh, force or the threat thereof. It requires social control. Social control is the rules uh, and the different ways of life. Those rules can be formal or informal that people follow to get things done. And what intervention ultimately requires uh, to varying degrees, of course, depending on the type of intervention, is a group of outsiders saying, I don't like what's happening in that society. Of course, if they if they didn't have that kind of view that they didn't like what happened. There'd be no urge to intervene to change things. An intervention tries to change what naturally would, would occur otherwise. And that requires controlling people. And that requires certain a certain mindset, a certain mental schema, if you will. And that that's what that's what you're getting at when you talk about, look, you have to have uh, confidence in the ability of, of government to change things. You have to have confidence and comfort telling other people how to live their life and, and backing that up by force if they refuse to do so. And limited compassion and sympathy toward the target populace. I like that. One. That's right. That's right. Right. And, 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 and you, you capture that, you know, by, this is bipartisan. I, I, you know, we've all heard politicians like talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, the failure, not as a failure of U.S. policy, but as somehow the failure of the recipients of and they'll put it in terms of a gift we gave. We bestowed upon the folks of Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the, you know, the right to be free or democracy, and they chose to reject it. Well, that's certainly one way to view it. Uh, another is that 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 they didn't view it uh, uh, as the gift that you're framing it as. Uh, and so, there's a, a certain kind of framing that goes here. Um, there's a, a disregard typically for for uh, a human life of, of non-Americans, uh, and you see this in the way U.S. policymakers and those in the military talk about it. The way they frame it, collateral damage, the the unwillingness to to in many cases have base even attempt to count the number of civilians lost or to uh, uh, to make it uh, as uh, opaque as possible. Going back to your point about what kind of things could we do to make this more transparent? There's constraints. There's data you could make available, uh, but but oftentimes in government, of course, they they take active steps to mask this data so that people can have access to it and, and understand the full implications of it. Is that that kind of pivot from it wasn't our failure to it was, you know, it wasn't our failure, it was their failure, how you get around? I mean, so when you first mentioned, when Trevor first mentioned this, like kind of they go in and then they have this overconfidence in the ability of large bureaucratic systems, in this case, military systems to solve problems. It clashes with, I mean, 
most of the people who I've talked to serve in the military come out being like, man, we had no idea what we were doing. Like they don't come out with confidence in these systems and we, you know, making fun of the incompetence of the, I mean, there's the new Catch-22 movie yeah. is coming out. Like that doesn't seem – it doesn't seem like we have this broad consensus that the military is this well-oiled machine that gets things done. Or at least especially people who've been in the military. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it probably depends on – and Chris may have other things to add to this as well. I think part of that, it depends on who it is that you're talking to coming out from the military. Um, because I know in my experience, it's been something very similar Um when I present this or other research to former members of the military, um, the first few times I was surprised because I found a lot of them agreed with me and they're saying, yes, you're telling us things that we actually lived through. So they've experienced the the bureaucracy. Um, but I do think that there is some potentially a meaningful difference um, in maybe where you are within that organization. So for those people who have been uh able to climb the military ladder, and we talk about this in the book, um, they've illustrated that they are really good at playing that game. So they're able to do the things which are pleasing to their superiors to engage in the actions which are going to make them successful within that organization. Um, and so the people that I might be talking to or who might be coming to me are not those people who've been able to make a career out of the military. They're people who spent, you know, four, eight years in and then and then left. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction to make. Now, let's get some specifics here. So we're talking the abstracts, but you do a very good job of saying this is exactly how it works. Um, and the first one you talk about is surveillance. Uh, we, so we have a pretty – we know – I think most people expect a large amount of surveillance from the US government in their life, which wasn't always the case. Uh, but that that itself, some of those institutions and technologies have roots in foreign intervention. Uh, yeah, we in, in the book we we kind of talk about the the boomerang effect framework. We talk about America uh, specifically and the constraints uh, or lack thereof uh, related to foreign intervention. Then we shift into kind of four illustrations or, or case studies, and, and surveillance is 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 the first one we discuss. And you know, one of the interesting things that that came about in all the cases that we discussed and and studied for this book is is just how far back they go. Uh, of course, you know, people think about surveillance to the extent they think about it at all, and a lot of people say, okay, the NSA. Snowden, and then you you know if you if you just look up a history of the NSA, you say oh early fifties that's the NSA, and you say okay, uh, that's the history of this thing, uh, but it's not. There's a, a much deeper history when you delve into it, uh, and uh, there's always been surveillance, of course, to, to var of varying types. As long as there's been wars, there's been governments. They always surveil whether it's directly observing, having spies, opening people's mail. Those are all forms of surveillance throughout history, as well as many others. But in, in, in the case of America, you can trace back the origins of the modern day surveillance state to the, the war in the Philippines. Uh, so we're talking uh, late 1800s into the early 1900s. Uh, and of course, the, the war in the Philippines is, is one that you don't hear too, too many people talk about. Uh, but in many of the cases that we talk about in the book, uh, you can trace back the origins to that. Uh, and of course, when, when the America or, or the American government, I should say, took over the Philippines, uh, many uh, of the citizens that, that lived in the Philippines were expecting to be granted independence, uh, but the American government wasn't ready to grant them independence. Uh, and so, of, as you can imagine, that led to uh, great unhappiness and a meeting of resistance by, by people living in the country being occupied and being told what to do. So how are you going to fight the insurgents? Uh, part of it was brute force, the, the American military apparatus uh, engaged in brute force. But for the first time, uh, the American government also established uh, a, a apparatus of surveillance uh, under someone named Ralph Van Diemen, um, who's called the, the father of, of military intelligence. Um, he's in the Military Intelligence Hall of Fame. There is such a thing. Uh, and, and he is, uh, and what he did, which was quite genius at the time, uh, was use all the available technology available to him. Now, again, by today's standards, of course, it would be very rudimentary. Uh, but uh, uh, he collected enormous amounts of information on people and used that information to manipulate people, to try to anticipate who would be insurgents, to ruin people's lives. And we're talking everything from, um, you know, things about their 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 participation in insurgent groups to their personal life, their sex life, their financial records. And so you had this systematic attempt to collect this information and use that information to manipulate people to get outcomes. Van Diemen finishes up. He comes back to, to America in the, in the early 1900s. Uh, and, uh, 
he, he goes to work to try to set up a similar apparatus domestically. Uh, he meets uh, a variety of, of bureaucratic barriers to doing this. It wasn't like a smooth process where he just snapped his fingers and it happened. But World War I, or the onset of World War I, presented him with the opportunity to do this. Uh, and he established uh, uh, one of the first kind of systematic uh, surveillance operations. It was very small. It was only him and a few people um, in America. Uh, and it slowly expanded over time. Uh, at one point in time, and it went through a variety of iterations like any kind of bureaucracy. It had a whole host of different names if you look at it, which eventually became the NSA. Uh, the NSA was formed in uh, 1952, I believe, and that's the year Van Diemen died. So it kind of his his vision came to full maturation and and uh, came to be fulfilled at the end of his life. Uh, and uh, you know, you see this these crazy things when you read about it. At one point, uh, it's called the American Black Chamber. They had set up a, a business front in New York City, and they they uh, uh, again it was a small group of people. It wasn't like this huge apparatus. So these people sitting in this building in uh, in New York City, and they entered into these backroom agreements with all the the major wire Western Union, which of course was one of the major telecommunication companies with international communications over wires. And you had a, a small group of of members of the American military reading all these things, having access to all this information. Uh, then, of course, you come up through the revelations that led to the church committee, which, again, was massive spying, uh, the abuse of these tools of surveillance to uh, uh, fight people that those with political power didn't like. And it wasn't just communists. It was civil rights leaders, uh, others viewed as posing the broadest threat to uh, uh, members of the political elite. Uh, and then, of course, you have the Snowden revelations, um, which are, you know, so you start going back and you're like, all right, the Snowden revelations come out and they're jarring for what, five minutes for people that care about it and they just move on to the next thing. And you quickly realize that this has been happening over and over again. The, the technology is different. The, the way that government implements it is different, but it's the same kind of stuff over and over again, which shouldn't be that shocking to people. Uh, you know, one, one of the kind of core insights, which it's not new to us, it's been talked by political theorists and, and others for centuries, is kind of the paradox of government. The idea of, of look, we empower government to do stuff. In principle, they can do lots of good stuff, but of course, they can also utilize that power to do lots of bad stuff. And so how do you simultaneously or can you simultaneously empower government and constrain them? And really, that's what's this all about. Can you simultaneously grant political agents, government, massive surveillance powers, which by definition are covert? They have to be in order to surveil people because if they know they're being surveilled, they're not very effective and simultaneously create constraints that are to prevent abuse. And, and that's really in some sense what, what this all comes down to. I would suggest the empirical record is uh, very weak in coming up with effective constraints. Um, and one, one kind of obvious metric for that is whistleblowers, as, as you mentioned earlier, Snowden is that's typically how people find out about these things, but also the members of government, when these things are revealed, will simultaneously point out that there's nothing there to see and invest a massive amount of resources discrediting the person and trying to punish the person, which should strike people as odd if there's nothing there to see. And so, you know, it, it poses that tension of, of how you resolve these things and can you. But in the case of surveillance, it is, it is kind of a, a perfect illustration of how a foreign intervention uh, over a century ago, kind of boomerang back, boomerangs back to domestic life and influences us today. The, the dynamics and nature of that has evolved, of course, but it's still there and the foundations go all the way back to that intervention in the Philippines. When we're talking about this, we talk in moralized language. So we need to prevent abuses. We need to stop them from doing things that they shouldn't do. But from a pure economic standpoint, are we just dealing with an instance of revealed preferences in that like we in this room or Trevor and I at the Cato Institute, like we think that this stuff, that a massive surveillance state is is bad, privacy violations are bad, social control is bad. But maybe it's just the situation that Americans, despite the, the rhetoric of the American founding and our, our pointing to the constitution, just simply like this stuff or want this stuff or, you know, or aren't aren't bothered at all by it. And we see that in responses like, well, I don't care if they surveil me because I'm not doing anything wrong or, you know, if only we had even more cops busting heads in my neighborhood, that would be great. And so is this just an instance where weird civil libertarians have a set of preferences that are just not shared by anyone? That's a that's a, a wonderful point. And, and we we discuss this in the book uh, at the end, really, when we talk about kind of solutions. And, and you know, one of the, the main things is is exactly the point you raise, which is, uh, you know, there's there's parts of a democratic system that that operate outside the purview of what what citizens want. Some people call it the deep state. 
whatever people want to call it. There, there are, there, just given the nature of big bureaucracies, there's going to be stuff that happens that you can't monitor, that stuff's going to happen that you don't directly express your, your voice for. It's just the, the nature of the beast. But of course, that doesn't mean people don't have a voice. They can't express their, their views. And of course, there have been moments in American history and in other societies where people have had dramatically different preferences than what their government is doing. And they have expressed those either through voting or through some kind of revolt or protest and gotten change. What, what does this mean? At the end of the day, it means exactly the, the point you made, which is I, I do think many Americans, perhaps most Americans based on, on many opinion polls, are quite comfortable being surveilled. Uh, uh, they, they, they say exactly the kind of things you're saying that, you know, if, if you have nothing to hide, uh, or why would you worry about this? Or, or, or you know, I'm fine being patted down at the at the airport. It makes us safer. Uh, and there, there's the empirical aspect of that. Like, does it make you safer? But then there's this broader point that we're trying to make about the long term consequences of that. And so, you know, kind of where we conclude is that uh, uh, one of the things you need in order to reverse this, that you can't turn to politicians to reverse it. They're, they have no incentive to reverse it. They, they like power. That's part of this. And, and they are going to continually work to take advantage of existing slack and the constraints and to expand that slack. And so where that leaves us is, is ultimately you need uh, enough citizens, whatever enough means to, to want to change things. And, you know, we try to lay out the case here that they should care about it. Uh, uh, hope We hope they do because we think it's an important part of maintaining liberty and freedom. Uh, but ultimately, you're right. If, if people don't want it, if they are complicit in, in government doing it, government's going to do it. Your next example is something I've worked on, police militarization. And uh, Aaron's question about seen and unseen, the very beginning of your book, you point out Ferguson, which was the first time that a lot of people saw something that had been going on for quite a while. And Radley Balco started his work on, the, on that Cato here. Um, but I think it, it's also a really good example of the three elements of the boomerang effect. So you have the human capital channels we discussed. So you have military people coming back uh, to policing. You have the organizational dynamics. Cops turn into militarized ranking and discipline and in physical capital like tanks uh, all together but but tell a little about that story so the militarization example as you pointed out i think is a really nice illustration because we've got kind of all of the dynamics that we're talking about and again what we find is uh the start really in in the Philippines, at least that's always the, Phil always yeah. the Philippines. Yeah, yeah. we have to, as a, it's, we'll have to put the Stephen Kinzer episode in the show notes so they can go back and listen to that and then figure out all the stuff that started in the Philippines. Right. So we uh, we we start off by noting that historically there's been at least a, an attempt in theory, if not necessarily in practice, of trying to separate the functions of police from the military. Uh, so you look at something like the U.S. soldiers' creed about being ready to engage, deploy, and you know destroy enemies of the United States in close combat versus something like the LAPD model or motto to protect and serve. Um, there's been a series of attempts, again, to codify that. Uh, so people who are familiar with it may be familiar with something like Posse Comitatus, uh, which came on the books after the U.S. Civil War, where you had uh, the U.S. Uh, military, which was attempting to prevent Southern blacks from voting. Uh, that's violated almost immediately. Um, but to really start with it, I think, again, the Philippines is the best place. So as Chris mentioned a few minutes ago, you have this resistance uh, and the U.S. military, not constrained by things like posse comitatus when they're acting abroad, uh, they develop a constabulary, so a military uh, police force to control the civilian population. Uh, and as part of this, this allows for the development of and this honing of various styles of policing, some of which uh, remarkably brutal, which we do detail in the chapter. Uh, and from this, you get a man named August Vollmer, who becomes known as the father of modern policing. So Vollmer uh, is part of the Philippine Constabulary. He returns home. He joins the police department at Berkeley. He becomes Berkeley's police chief uh, throughout his tenure. He will also spend, uh, I believe it's a year or two, as Los Angeles police chief. And he also serves as a consultant to a variety of different police departments. And if you read uh, what people have written about Vollmer, uh, if you read, uh, again, his biographers or contemporaries of his, they talk about it as he felt as though martial law or people felt that martial law was in place when he was police chief. And he felt like that that worked to his advantage. And he was of the opinion that police should be run like the military. And so that's what he set out to do. Um, 
he was a fan of things like universal fingerprinting for every citizen in the United States, something that he was not able to successfully champion, um, but was a big proponent of implementing the types of tactics and technologies that had de- been developed as part of this occupation of the Philippines. So things that we might not think about uh, today as being huge technological innovations, uh, but things like having police officers on bicycles or them being able to call into the police station with a you know telephone or telegraph or putting police officers in cars when cars became available. Um, it's appropriate that several years later uh, and another case that we talk about related to police militarization. And I think it's important to point out, too, that we see this not happening all at once. We do see this occurring in in layers. So it's not this clean, linear trajectory. It's, it's piecemeal. Um, you get to the war in Vietnam, and you have yet more foreign intervention, more opportunities to uh, hone methods of social control. Um, and you have the Watts riots in Los Angeles in the mid-1960s. And then you have a guy named John Nelson. He was a Marine veteran, had served in Vietnam, and he'd been part of an elite force recon unit. Now you hear reconnaissance unit, you think intelligence gathering. Um, They're effectively an an elite killing force. So we have stuff about engagement statistics, um, casualty rates for elite force recon units versus regular Marine units. And John Nelson looks at these riots that are occurring in Los Angeles, thinking about his time in Vietnam. He is now a member of the LAPD. He takes this idea to his superior. Uh, At the time, an inspector, he'd later become the police chief of the LAPD, named Daryl Gates. uh, And he proposes to him this idea. He says, I think I have a a way for us to better control these crowds at race riots. Uh, And he proposed to model a unit within the LAPD based on this elite force recon unit. Um, This would eventually turn into the first SWAT team. Uh, And I think in a very pointed example of how this militarization of policing has come in or the foreign intervention aspect, the proposed title was special weapons and attack team, but it was thought that that was too militaristic and too harsh. So they changed it to special weapons and tactics teams. Um, This very quickly becomes a permanent fixture of the LAPD. Every member of the original SWAT team for the LAPD had military training and experience. And the idea, as we now know, uh, from work like people like Radley Balco and others, has spread very quickly, which yet again, we can tie in to these foreign interventions abroad. So those who are familiar with that topic uh, might be aware of things like uh, Program 1033, which has gone through various iterations. It's the program that allows for the military to transfer surplus military equipment uh, to police departments. Uh, So you start to see all of those uh, dynamics that we talk about coming in. So you've got this human capital that is being infused at all these different points. So mentioned Volmer a few moments ago. It's not just Volmer. You have people who are doing similar things in West Virginia, people who are doing similar things in Pennsylvania with the experiences that they have. Uh, other people who are coming back from Vietnam and now in a contemporary context, returning from Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on terror, bringing in those uh, mindsets with them, developing these different organizational dynamics in a way that people who are former or current members of the military would also recognize Uh, what's going on in a policing context, because those are the dynamics that have been put in place. And then you bring in these programs, which allow for the use of military-grade equipment. Uh, And it really, I think, ultimately comes as no surprise that this is where we are. But we've got this historical context of foreign intervention really being kind of the cradle of this very uh, now hotly contested contemporary issue. Well, this was happening to go back to the the cultural question that I asked earlier, what was the reaction of people in, say, Los Angeles when the first SWAT teams came in, or or as the militarization went up? Like, was this was this move being cheered on by the general populace, or? 
Um, that uh, one of the tricky things about engaging in this type of research is that some of those types of questions, and that's a really good question, is that you don't always have that kind of information. Um, my guess would be is that it would probably have been a mixed bag. So you probably would have had some people who were uh, largely championing this as a move and other people who would probably be detractors, very similar to what we see today uh, with respect to police militarization. Anytime uh, I'm giving or talking about that as a topic, uh, you run into something very similar to what we were discussing earlier of, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, then you don't have anything to worry about. Or they'll typically bring up something about what police are confronting and then ask questions like, well, don't you want police to have what they need in order to be able to do their job? Uh, so the short answer to that question is I don't really know. Well, there definitely seemed to be a pretty high level of demand for among, among some people for criminal justice, for cracking heads, let's put it in that way, in the late 60s to turmoil the 60s, race concerns, the drug war, all this stuff comes up. So it's not just a, hey, we're going to impose this new SWAT team thing on you because I was in Vietnam. And I think I think the the war on drugs piece, and we, we talk about this in the book, is the war on drugs and the war on terror being um, yet another mechanism through which we see kind of the expansion of police militarization. And a large part of that has to do with that dynamic of there are now domestic enemies which are present and part of this ongoing perpetual war on drugs or war on terror. Uh, and therefore, in order to be able to effectively, the story goes, do our job, we need to be able to have this type of equipment or use these particular tactics, which even though they were once relegated to the military, are argued to be more appropriate or effective at, at doing the job. But you wouldn't make this like, uh, just to be clear about this, just, you wouldn't make the strong claim that but for Vietnam, we wouldn't have SWAT teams, right? I mean, or, I mean, I mean how, how, I guess, inevitable does this seem? And, and in trying to sort of demonstrate the thesis, do we see other countries maybe or other empire, like British Empire, do we see this happen too? Or for any of you, of their other examples, like how would the world look? I mean, there was demand for high level of policing. So maybe it was just that all these people were, had been in a war and then they had an easy option for being in the cops. You know, you say Daryl Gates was in World War II, but so was like every single person about his age at the time, right? And, and probably, you know, all of them, not all of them were that way. Uh, so, you know, how strong is the thesis here? So that's a great question, and we don't want to overstate the strength. I guess the more accurate to put it is the predictive power of the thesis. You know, in, in the book, we are we are very careful both early on and throughout to say that the kind of the boomerang effect is 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 first of all just one factor that influences the growth of government. There are you know, and every attempt to talk about the growth of government runs into this problem. It's just, it's extremely complex. Um, but of course, to, to get, gain any kind of analytic tractability, you have to focus on certain aspects and kind of either hold others constant or, or push them off the table. And so, you know, I, how would have things evolved absent any particular war? I, that I don't know. That's an interesting counterfactual to think about. Uh, do I think that it was inevitable that uh, either military or police or one of these other things would have happened absent a war? Uh, they, I imagine most of them still would have happened in some way, shape or form. Again, this is me speculating. Uh, but but the dynamics would have been different. But I do want to make clear that that, that you know we're, we're not saying this is the only cause of growth. That that there's kind of a deterministic type of thing that's happening, or that it has to happen. You know, again, one of the key kind of insights of the book is it, this isn't the the foregone way that life has to be. You can things can be different. That requires certain things, and pointing out how things occurred, I think, is important for number one understanding how they occurred, but also for assuming people want to either constrain them or make changes to reverse them for understanding how to go about that. And so, you know, that's how I think about it. It gets even more complex, by the way, because these things are all intertwined. So in the book, we talk about surveillance and militarization of police. Of course, these things are linked, right? Because, well, you know, in this, there, there's lots of present day examples of this that happened, that came to light just as we were publishing the book and after. You know, one of the main ones, of course, is is the surveillance technologies that were developed in Iraq that came back to America that are employed by police forces. Stingray's one of them. Um, um, you know, this idea of this real-time regional gateway, which was this kind of algorithm developed by the military in Iraq and Afghanistan. And and it's great. It's great for 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 tracking and, and helping members of the military to track and kill what they consider to be the enemy. Uh, the question then you have to wonder what happens when that comes home. So it's then they say, okay, now we have this technology. Well, let's deploy it at the southern border because we have immigration concerns, we have drug concerns, we have terrorist concerns. But of course, it doesn't just stay at the border. It's not just used to 
against bad people. Uh, it collects a lot of information on a lot of people that may be bad, uh, but may not be. And then you have to think about the implications of that. And so you get this blurring between uh, uh, the, the, the surveillance kind of capabilities of government, the militarization of police, and it's, it gets really complex really quick. Uh, but you can see how, how this kind of stuff uh, manifests itself domestically and how you just get example after example, some in the immediate term, some in the longer term. You'd asked about potential other examples and does this occur other places? And we were careful in the book to point out or we the, the framework that we've developed is is generalizable. And so we, we do not think that this is in any way, shape or form exclusive to the United States. Uh, other governments that would engage in foreign intervention, we'd expect to see this elsewhere. Uh, one of the things that I found both intriguing and at times frustrating about writing uh, this book was the amount of digging in the amount of historical knowledge and the amount of detail that you have to have about a variety of different things in order to really have um, an understanding of just the complexity of any one of these issues. And so in the book, we chose to focus on the United States. Um, there are some other examples in the U.S., which I think are of interest. So looking at things like uh, human rights abuses or human experimentation uh, is something that we've looked at. Uh, you can also look at things like far-right extremism. So looking at the intersection of the military and organizations like the KKK. Um, those things are also contemporary U.S. examples. Um, I would be very interested with people who have more knowledge about specific countries than I do um, to see what kinds of examples that they uh, might be able to use this framework to to discuss and illuminate. The ones that I was thinking, uh, Rome and the British Empire, of course, are ones that are similar scale as the American Empire. And I mean, I, it would be interesting. I don't have enough knowledge, but I imagine maybe you know Roman people going to serve as governors of Gaul might have come back and been like, "Well, you got to really keep those Gauls down, and like learn some techniques of of sort of oppression or British." Uh, uh, governors in India, you know, might have learned some things and brought them back home. But I, it does take some some more research. And I think in general, it seems like that we talk about what to do. Uh, we've identified a problem, which I think you guys are correct about this. Um, but it's not totally deterministic, but it has these elements to it. And we have one coming at one chapter. You discuss drones, which we're having domestic. Did those begin in the Philippines too? <laughs> no, but no, they did in World War One. though. I was shocked about that one. Right. Yeah. I, I, tell about the, the, or, the drones origin. Yeah. So drones, as we think about them, uh, as we point out, not, not quite Philippines early, but we're, we're getting pretty close. So in 1914, you see the first attempts at making some kind of an aerial drone. Uh, they're used at first for target practice. Over the years, capabilities get better. Uh, so really, you start to see the development of things like uh, smaller cameras, microprocessing systems, things like that. Uh, during the Cold War, they're used uh, for surveillance. Uh, we talk about reasons why. Uh, things like if you were to shoot down a surveillance drone over the Soviet Union, that's a bit more uh, politically easy to deal with. So we see this continuous development um, where we really see drones getting picked up and used extensively um, is primarily, again, in, in the war on terror. And while there is this historical build up to that, so it's not as though all of a sudden we just get this technology right around the year 2001, 2003. Um, but we do see uh, that once that technology is developed, we start to see almost immediately. And this is one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about the case of drones is that once that technology starts to be used, what I would argue um, more extensively by the military. So for extensive surveillance and then also, again, for uh, active uh, targeting. Once that technology starts to be used in that way in the war on terror, uh, you see pretty much immediately, like within the same year, that those same drone technologies are being used along the U.S. border. Um, there are certain people who play a pivotal role, um, like Arthur Sabrowski is somebody that uh, we discuss in the book uh, as being particularly important for really pushing uh, in a very similar way that we saw in the chapter on surveillance uh, becomes an integral part of pushing for the use of these unmanned technologies of these more uh, advanced computer systems as a way to modernize the military. Again, someone who is coming from the perspective of this is technology that has been successfully used abroad. This can also be successfully used uh, in domestically in a meaningful way. Bringing drones again forward to 2019, uh, we see now 
uh, police departments. Again, Chris mentioned a few moments ago that one of the things that makes it so complex is it all gets woven together. So you have surveillance, you have police militarization, and you have drones all simultaneously. Uh, drones being utilized by police departments for things like surveillance. Uh, drones being loaned out to police departments from uh, like customs enforcement uh, and border patrol, and also discussions of things like using armed drones uh, by police departments uh, being met with uh, varying degrees of opposition. So again, you have some people who are big fans of this uh, and other people who are uh, understandably, I think, concerned about the security threat or the threat to liberties that that poses. But is that is that the difficulty here about is it, it kind of underscores the what do we do about this because it's very hard to make a case against drones in general. I mean from a military standpoint, if we're not putting people in harm's way and we could accomplish a task, that's better than the than the than the alternative it seems from any military if you when you design military gear you design them to protect your people and hurt them like a tank is about that and if you don't even have to put a person in there so that's military drones seem like not a bad idea from a military perspective and then if we apply that domestically we say well you shouldn't use drones even though they're very good at doing that thing that we're trying to do which is protect the lives of officers and soldiers and getting the bad guys so how do we change the culture how do we change ideas that there is something wrong with this when you have to also admit that it's effective at doing many of the things that it, that people think should be done. So I think to point out, and this goes back. Uh, so uh, first, first point is that we we don't make the argument that any of this technology is inherently bad. Um, so for drones, for instance, they have very useful applications in things like combating fires or even like agricultural. Uh, implications. Search and rescue drones can be very good. Um, so we don't make any kind of claim that any one technology is in inherently bad. Uh, in terms of how do you change the culture surrounding it, I think it really goes back to this idea of the, the paradox of government that Chris mentioned earlier, of that we can see the potentially beneficial uses for these technologies. Um, with drones, there's a question, by the way, about whether or not they're actually safer for military personnel. Um, there's some data, I think, convincing data that indicates they may actually put more soldiers in harm's way and they have some psychological effects that are important to, to discuss. But that aside, figuring out, well, if we want you know, police officers, for instance, to be able to use drones in the event of some kind of a, a crisis, however we want to define what an appropriate crisis would be. How do we design rules to allow police departments to utilize technologies or the military or whoever to utilize these technologies in a way that we achieve results that we find acceptable, however we want to define that? Uh, and how do we constrain them to prevent the abuse of these? So one thing that people are typically concerned about, something like uh, should drones be used to do things like monitor cars and issue people speeding tickets? Uh, people seem to be particularly irritated about that, perhaps a lot less than they are about them using drones for surveillance. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thought, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.